politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, friends, Romans, and fellow patriotic countrymen to the Conservative Review podcast here at our Northern Command Center in Maryland, November 5th, Tuesday. It is Election Day, believe it or not. Um, lots of important elections going on, even though it is not an on year. We got three big governor's races going on. And as we've noted, we have a lot of prosecutor races going on. And we will have a federal prosecutor on who does not stand for election, but is appointed uh, Andrew Lelling of Massachusetts in a couple moments. Uh, but I just first want to frame things based on yesterday's show on crime and the elections kind of tying everything together. You know, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about crime, the drug crisis, criminal aliens, sanctuary cities, the cartels, transnational gangs, all really tying together in one seamless narrative if you properly study the issues and the trends, even homelessness, how that's tying in and why that is uh, spiking in many states at this juncture. And we often sleep through these elections. Now, obviously, today is a general election, but it should serve as a reminder to all of us that primaries do matter. And we need to be awake during the primaries so that when you come to a general election, you have a bold choice, not a faint and pathetic echo. And what I'm referring to, I mentioned a little bit yesterday, but now you see this is big news everywhere. In the state of Oklahoma, a state where every single county voted Republican for the past four straight presidential elections, 450 criminals were just marched out of jail straight up. And, and they're going to have the sob stories, and these are the best people in the world, and they're being reunited with their families. But the point is, even in a state like that, the Republican officials are fully bought into jailbreak. We are failing. One by one, we hear one liberal issue after another is really a conservative, moral thing to do as well. And slowly, we're losing everything. We're losing our country. So, you know, we have a lot of these prosecutor elections, and I want some of you to email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Let me know what your thoughts are in your local areas, because I'm not going to be able to track all these races, but hopefully for tomorrow we could give a summation of successes, failures, what to learn from it. But we'll be tracking that. Obviously, Eddie Rispone, the Republican in Louisiana, endorsed by Trump, he actually ran against jailbreak, one of the few Republicans who did so. Jailbreak is huge in Louisiana. Yes, it was signed by the Democrat Governor uh, Edwards, but at the same time, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, all these libertarian groups, Republican donors were very involved. So that's going to be an important race to watch as well. But I mean, this is the thing. We're not going to change things on their own if we only focus on Democrats. This is what I've been yelping about for my entire career. If you don't change the Republican Party, you get the Democrat policies anyway, and worse, you get them under the guise of conservatism. So you can't even shoot at it. You can't even hit at it and try to defeat them because it becomes consensus. And that's really how the left wins in the ultimate sense without firing a shot. 
So there's that issue. Then obviously, again, tying back into the cartels and crime and drugs, we, we have this Mormon family or two Mormon families that were killed, nine American citizens killed in Mexico by the cartels, six um, children. And the president tweeted out that, hey, we need to do something about these monsters. I'm willing to work with the Mexican president. Just, uh, you know, give me the call. Give me the word and we'll do it. Uh, I want to say very clearly, I'm glad he's focusing on it. And I would certainly support working with the right, reliable Mexican forces. But to be clear, let's go for the lower hanging fruit first before dealing with Mexico's interior, our own borderline. I mean, forget about how the Mexicans operate with impunity inside of Mexico. The Mexican, the cartels operate with impunity. At our border, in our border, across our border, shooting 50 cal automatic weapons at border agents and nothing happens to them. We run away. So the rules of engagement need to be changed. The tactics of Border Patrol need to change. And yes, Trump is right that an army needs to be met by an army. But that means not just our military maybe helping out the Mexicans inside of Mexico. That means our military holding the line at the border. I'm not talking about them enforcing 8 U.S.C. 1325, 1326, domestic immigration law, reentries. Yes, CBP will process them, deal with them. I'm talking about holding the line against armed cartels. Um, you don't step foot on our soil. And you have the military doing that, as well as CBP having uh, upgraded uh, tactics and obviously rules of engagement. But remember, at present, the cartels cross in front of the military because they know we won't do anything to them. There's no reason we can't, and we should. And that's where the president needs to start. So this is a pivotal moment in really trying to change the momentum to designate the cartels as terrorists, treat them as terrorists, certainly domestically when we catch them. Um, but obviously, treating the border not as a law enforcement operation, but as a military um, offensive and defensive posturing, as we should any transnational border, which frankly is why our military was created. Don't, don't give me this posse comitatus nonsense. They're not enforcing you know, immigration law like ICE and U.S. attorneys. <laughs> They'd be holding the line against belligerents at hostile forces at our border, which is quite quintessentially what our military was created to do. Now, I mentioned at the top of the hour here that we've been meaning to get on a federal prosecutor for a long time. I, I can't believe we've never done it. We, we had a local DA, DA on. For all the talk we, we do and all the writings we have on the convergence of the drug crisis, the border crisis, the criminal alien crisis, sanctuary cities, a general feeling of uptick in crime, particularly with drug trafficking, but really other crimes as well, in if not all major cities, but a lot of major cities, we're seeing an unfortunate turn up in crime after 20 years going down. What's going on? And in order to do this, I really want to bring in Andy Lelling for quite some time. He's the U.S. attorney from Massachusetts. As you well know, Massachusetts is a statewide sanctuary from the politicians, from the state judges. Um, weak on, on drug laws, weak on immigration. What, what is happening there? Well, we see a terrible drug crisis in New England 
um, which, as we've noted before, really is a polydrug crisis. It's not a prescription opioid crisis per se. I want to get into that a little bit. There's the transnational gangs there. You got MS-13, but you also have Dominican gangs that are servicing the cartels. And then you got all these criminal alien networks that can operate with impunity. So um, Mr. Lelling served for 15 years in the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, as well as in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Eastern District of Virginia. I got a lot of friends there. Um, Terrific office. But his specialty really has been immigration, drug trafficking, um, fraud, and so many of these issues that we've woven together both in our immigration discussions and our general criminal justice discussions. So this is a real treat and an honor to be joined on the line by Andy Lelling, U.S. Attorney from Massachusetts. Hey, Andy, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and I'm sorry we couldn't have you in person, but it's certainly a treat to have you at all online here. Um, just to to start off here, I opened the show discussing this tragic murder of this Mormon family, U.S. citizens in Mexico, right near the New Mexico border. So a lot, I, th- I feel that more Americans than ever will finally start hearing about cartels, which unfortunately have not been in the news enough and how they impact our lives. Could you just give a sense of in your area of operation in Massachusetts, how much of this crisis that is often referred to as an opioid crisis, which usually conjures up medical terms, healthcare, hospitals, doctors, but how much of this is really driven by a law enforcement problem, a cartel problem, a criminal alien network problem? It is it is driven by the cartel problem. I, I saw that story about the Mormon family as well. It was absolutely appalling. And I think it is a reminder that in some ways Mexico seems to be trending toward simply being a failed state. Um, a few weeks ago, we got a briefing from DEA guys posted in Mexico that was absolutely terrifying about the prevalence and increasing power of the cartels there. And the cartels are producing record quantities of fentanyl. You know, now the problem in the Northeast is not so much heroin, which is an opiate, but fentanyl and opioid, which is made cheaply in Mexico uh, or shipped from China to Mexico and is coming overland or by mail uh, to this region, where, as, as you pointed out, and you were exactly right, you have uh, in the northern part of Massachusetts a mostly illegal Dominican population servicing the cartels and redistributing these drugs into points north, uh, into Massachusetts itself, but also into New Hampshire, uh, up uh, 93 and uh, Maine, 495 to 95, and supplying most of New England with a drug that's killing thousands of people a year. Wow. I mean, so 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 that that in itself is big news. I mean, I, I recently did an article on a University of Boston study that just came out. Just one point three percent of all opioid fatalities, not even allowing for drug fatalities, which, you know, you got cocaine there. It doesn't even include that. The, the percentage would be even smaller. But among opioid deaths, just one point three percent of those victims in their toxicology reports um, had valid prescriptions for those drugs found in the toxicology. Yeah, no, so, that, that's exactly yeah. right. The, 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 the epidemic has changed, meaning a few years ago, the problem of um, prescription opioids fueling addiction and prescription opioids being a gateway to, uh, to addiction was a big deal. 
that has trended downward for years as the pharmacies and the doctors and the medical associations have really tightened up. And I, I think some credit is due them, due to them. I think they've done a good job. Uh, corresponding with the drop in the availability of prescription opioids is the increase in the availability of cheap fentanyl or fentanyl-laced cocaine or fentanyl-laced heroin or whatever else you want. And now fentanyl is driving the epidemic, obviously, and uh, a substance that you can't, get, cannot get with a prescription. You have to acquire it legally, and it's hyperpotent. And so more and more of the opioid-related deaths each year are fentanyl-related deaths. So they are fentanyl overdoses. Sure, sure. And, and, and I, I'm curious your thoughts, and I know this is not so much in Massachusetts, but if you expand this a little bit further on the drug end, that, again, this is more of a supply-side problem, and I want to dissect that on the cartel side, meeting a what I would call kind of a cultural problem on the demand side, because it's not just opioids. In, in 19 Western states, meth is now the top killer over heroin or fentanyl. And my understanding is, I mean, meth is the opposite. It's a psychostimulant. It's the opposite of a depressant. So it seems like so long as we don't deal with the source of the problem, we're going to have multiple avenues of this. And I wanted to get your comment on this. Um, I, I heard from a, a DA agent and specifically was a special agent in charge in Atlanta, Robert Murphy. He had an amazing insight. He said everyone fights over what drugs come in at the points of entry, what come in between, what comes in through the mail. But he he told me the following, that the reality is that drugs don't produce themselves. Um, they don't engage in violence themselves. They don't collect the cash. They don't distribute themselves. They don't run operations for the cartel themselves. And you need networks. And those people are in the country. They're often illegal aliens. And that if we would only be able to just grab those people and throw them out, the pricing would be prohibitive. Is that what you're seeing in New England? I think there, I think there is something to that. So f there's a few good points there. Uh, one, I think the problem on the supply side is exactly what you describe, meaning the current, the current uh, premier drug problem in the Northeast is opioids. As you point out, it's now meth in the western part of the U.S., uh, the cops will tell you that the meth epidemic is going to be even worse than the opioid epidemic because, as you mm. point out, meth is a stimulant. So the person ODing on meth is far more dangerous to those around him or her than the person ODing on opioids. I mean, meth, uh, people are ODing on meth, that's when they start hurting other people. Mm. Um, and so the problem is um, large organized cartels south of the border who produce these drugs as cheaply as they ever have and they're pouring over the border. Right now it's opioids, next it'll be some other drug, meth, and then who knows what it'll be after that. But until you deal with the cartels, you will not be able to fix the problem. Second, um, the SAC in Atlanta is exactly right. You obviously have to have networks of people in the United States, and they are often stocked with illegal immigrants to distribute these, uh, these drugs. Now what we see here in New England is yes, there is a correspondence between the uh, illegal immigrant Dominican community in Massachusetts and heroin and fentanyl trafficking. And what it really boils down to is border security would help both problems. So if border security vis-a-vis -vis immigration was better, it'd be harder to get into the United States as an illegal Dominican immigrant. And if border security vis-a-vis -vis drugs was better, then it would be tougher to get the drugs into the United States. It would help 
both problems. Now, it's not a one-for-one ratio, meaning there's a tremendous amount of heroin and fentanyl trafficking going on in Massachusetts that has nothing to do with illegal immigration from the Dominican Republic. But, and again, here's where your sack in Atlanta is correct, if we had better tools for cracking down on the illegal immigrant communities uh, north of Boston, we would make a tremendous dent in a lot of the heroin and fentanyl trafficking going on out of those communities. And we try to do this. And so there's a city north of Boston called Lawrence. And I hate to pick on Lawrence, but Lawrence is the source of the vast majority of heroin and fentanyl that is killing people in New Hampshire and Maine. It just is. And the cops in Lawrence will tell you the same thing. So we have taken to attacking the drug problem, the drug sourcing problem in Lawrence, basically two ways. We do it through the traditional tools that the DEA has, and we do it through immigration enforcement. And we find that both are extremely effective. Now, obviously, we haven't solved the problem, but both have made a dent. And I talked to my colleagues, the U.S. attorneys in New Hampshire and Maine, and, and they confirm that the problem has gotten slightly better. But at the end of the day, both those states are still in the top 10 for per capita opioid-related deaths per year. Sure, sure. And, and, and it's funny when you say attacking it through the traditional versus immigration means – um, some of us in you know who have been strong proponent, proponents of immigration enforcement have called it immigration broken broken windows policing because so what's happening and I hope we have time to get to this a little bit is that despite what some politicians say the trend clearly in this country is um, to deincarcerate in general and certainly with drug offenses even drug traffickers um, and a lot of American drug traffickers let's face it they're not going to serve a lot of time. It's hard to even hold them pre-trial, so they're going to be out, they're going to recidivate, they're going to keep doing their thing. But if, but if you take the illegal alien drug traffickers, well, you don't have to deal with their recidivism because the very first time that they're arrested, they should be completely out of here. And then, you know, wouldn't that really diminish a lot of their networks? Well, it, what it does is it disrupts those drug trafficking networks. So we've done this, right? So we've worked with the immigration authorities in the drug context, and we will do um, arrests of uh, you know, drug trafficking networks. We'll round up a lot of people, sort of traditional DEA enforcement. We will have um, ICE agents join us for those sweeps where we will pick up drug traffickers and we will also inevitably find other traffickers who we might not have enough evidence against on the drug side, but we do on the immigration side. But the end result is people get arrested and people get deported, and that drug trafficking network is disrupted, but only temporarily for two reasons. Others take the place of those we've arrested, but also what you see again and again is the person who is grabbed and deported comes back shockingly quickly because it's just not that hard. So we will have cases where defendants will prefer to be deported instead of convicted and imprisoned in the United States because you can deport them and they go back to, in this case, say the Dominican Republic, and they can be back in the United States in a month. And so um, while it works in disrupting drug trafficking networks, it works sort of uh, in a limited way. Uh, and so what I prefer is the cases where we're able to put together a significant drug trafficking charge, where there is a significant term of incarceration involved, and then the person is deported, because then at least you've taken them out of commission for some period of time.
Sure. And, and also, this is where you see the symbiotic relationship between interior and border enforcement that obviously you need both. But if you know you, you, you grab them, throw them out, but you don't have the proper border security. Yeah. I mean, we see all the time some of the most heinous crimes are committed by those that were previously deported, sometimes a number of times. Sure. Um, so so, yeah, that's what the drugs closely related. I wanted to move on to other categories related to immigration. It's unmistakable that during the second term of the Bush administration, when secure communities was really in place, um, you barely heard about MS-13 anymore. Um, it, you just didn't. Suddenly, I would put the benchmark around 2014, 2015, almost tracking very closely with the rise with, with, in, in the most deadly drug epidemic is this massive rise in transnational gang activity. So I'm in Maryland. We see it a ton in Maryland, D.C. suburbs, both the Virginia, Maryland side. Oh, yeah. You have a real MS-13 issue. in uh, Real MS-13. In what what yeah. sort of things are you seeing? Because I've seen a lot of stories in Massachusetts where, you know, t- obviously basic criminology dictates that usually someone's not picked up the first time on murder. Um, they've committed other crimes and they recidivate. So what I'm noticing is that a lot of gang members picked up in Massachusetts who are also illegal aliens, they're they're released and they continue their career. Are you seeing a big trend of that in your state? Well, what we see is there are a few things going on. Uh, I agree with you on the rise of MS-13. And uh, unlike what you normally see, we've had a lot of MS-13 prosecutions where you're prosecuting someone for participating in a murder and they've never been in the system before, or they've been in the system for something minor before. Mm. And some of those people have been deported and then um, came back, and some not. We have a tremendous problem. Oh, let me back up a step. We used to have a tremendous MS-13 problem in greater Boston, <laughs> which at least for the moment we have tamped down through aggressive prosecution. We uh, indicted and convicted uh, about 60 members of MS-13 over the last year or two, many of whom received very long prison sentences because there were several murders involved and and, uh, stuff like that. And so we have seen a marked drop in violent crime in Chelsea and East Boston and other neighborhoods where MS-13 had been prevalent. But what we also noticed during the process of prosecuting MS-13, and we would get this information from cooperating witnesses, is um, when we would arrest and lock up MS-13 members, Within weeks, they would be replaced by an, Ill- an illegal immigrant from El Salvador, often sent mm. for the purpose by more senior MS-13 personnel. And that's something we've noticed lately. MS-13 has become much more sophisticated across regions. There's and and much is, that being fueled, is that being fueled a lot by the large supply of UACs, the unaccompanied alien teens? Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's actually exactly where I was going. The unaccompanied minor program was, and I understand why it existed, was a problem because you would have unaccompanied minors that would show up in Massachusetts. They have no real support system. They're not really with anyone who cares particularly about them. They get pushed into the school, so they're in middle school or high school, and they are uh, just red meat for MS-13 recruiters. Mm. And so they wind up in MS-13, and you know, the blink of an eye, a year or two later, they're killing some other kid with a machete. And the unaccompanied minor program and and bad border security has allowed MS-13 to replenish its ranks in the United States 
despite aggressive enforcement. Now, I think that enforcement has caught up with MS-13 in many regions, including here, I'm happy to say. But one of the reasons why the problem persists is because you can get people into the country illegally to replace people who are arrested in you know, whatever city you happen to be in. Wow. I mean, so in, in that sense, every city is really a border city. Um, yeah, well, sure, because, the, because transportation is obviously easy, and MS-13 is now sufficiently well-coordinated that if you know, an MS-13 click in you know, Atlanta or L.A. or wherever uh, is disrupted and partially dismantled and most of its members are arrested, somebody makes a phone call and maybe some more guys get sent uh, to take their place. Wow. No, I mean, that, 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 that's a big deal because, again, a lot of big, notorious crimes committed in so many markets that we've reported on here, um, it's never traced back to the border. It's as if, OK, there's some sort of domestic crime, which we certainly have enough of our own, but often it's, it's from the border. I mean, it's transnational driven. And um, again, so, I mean, basically you're saying that having proper border security will ensure that you don't have this um, – you know, kind of like drinking coffee with a fork that every every bit you get, you know, we wind up losing out the other end and they replenish their ranks. Um, we could actually get the convictions to 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 stick or remove them and their ranks right. would be replenished. Right. And improved border security. I mean, in a less crazy time, improved border security is a no brainer. It helps you tamp down illegal immigration so you can decide what parameters you'd like to have for legal immigration. I'm a fan of legal immigration. It's the illegal kind that is a problem for the country. It would tamp down drug trafficking. It would help with the problem of transnational gangs. I mean, it, it should be a no-brainer, but because of the times we live in, suddenly it's become you know, a, a, a debatable subject, which from a law enforcement perspective is unfortunate. So what, what I'm seeing, and I know this is a little bit more ISIS purview, but what I'm seeing in many places in the Pacific Northwest and California is that there is no floor to the sanctuary policies, meaning it's not a matter of, oh, this guy's low level. That's what I, what I think it started out with. We are seeing those who are convicted child molesters or had previous convictions are picked up on something else. No matter what it is, they will release them. Are you seeing that in Massachusetts? Um. You know, I think it I think it varies. I don't think it's quite that bad yet. Massachusetts is obviously a very blue state. It, 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 there's a lot of sanctuary cities, quote unquote, here. And most of the state and local authorities will not cooperate with ICE. And it varies on the state and local level what kind of response you get. So in some municipalities, the response, you know, they're aggressively opposed to ICE. They let out everyone they could find. Other municipalities, not so much. So it kind of varies. But what you see is, as on the one hand, state and local uh, municipalities uh, pointedly refuse to cooperate with ICE and then pat themselves on the back for their moral superiority. On the other side of the equation, ICE becomes more and more frustrated and itself less willing to accommodate or cooperate with state and local authorities. And so it becomes like parallel play. And where you see this, for example, is state court prosecutes somebody for a state crime and lets the guy out on bail. ICE then picks that person up and deports him, right, because he's here illegally. And so the person can no longer be prosecuted in state court. 
That annoys the state court authorities, but ICE's view is, well, I mean, if you're not going to cooperate with us, then why are we going to cooperate with you? And so it becomes this sort of dysfunctional environment, which is bad for public safety. And sure. I, think the, I think the origin of it is these aggressive sanctuary city type policies where for you know, 30 years or more, local authorities are perfectly happy to cooperate with the immigration authorities. But now for some reason, it's become you know, uh, deeply problematic for them to do that. Sure. I mean, the, the way we always see it here is that it, it's not a morality issue. It's a redressability issue. It's not that a crime committed by an illegal is worse than a crime committed by an American. It's that it just seems to be so much more redressable, again, because um, we have this massive recidivism problem with, with the 10 doing the 90, you know, the small amount of criminals doing most of the crime. Um, in my view, unlike contrary to uh, the, the prevailing view in politics now, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of people that are not being locked up long enough, if at all. So, you, you know, you, you have to continue dealing with them. But if you get someone who's a foreign national criminal, I mean, you would think we would all embrace the opportunity to just complete the full cycle and get him out of here um, where it makes sense to do so and not prosecute him. Yes. But but instead, we're having to deal with other countries, criminals, repeat offenses. So what I'm wondering about is a lot of people ask me. You know, it seems like when it comes to other spheres of policy, you have these images of the feds coming in with the badges and taking over. And it seems like states are, I mean, comparatively weaker than they were in the 1800s. But somehow when it comes to immigration law, there's kind of this hang ringing from DHS. There's nothing we can do. It's a sanctuary. What I'm not understanding is AUSC 1324 is very clear. Um, this was juiced up in 1996, which passed the Senate unanimously, signed by Bill Clinton. You cannot induce, encourage, harbor, transport um, illegal aliens. Now, you know, if, if a public official says, I love illegal aliens, well, it's free speech. You could do that. But we're starting to see where they're really taking active steps to thwart federal officials from, from enforcing federal law. In your area of operation, are you stepping up? enforcement and prosecutions of 1324 violations? Well, we do do those cases, but in the context you're talking about, I think there's an important distinction, meaning what, it, so the, the municipalities in, in, uh, in Massachusetts that are quote unquote sanctuary cities, what they have done is they have gone from um, affirmatively cooperating with ICE, which is what they did for years, to not cooperating with ICE. Now, failing to cooperate with ICE is not going to be a 1324 violation. That's what they're doing. In the rare sure. instances where they affirmatively hinder ICE, yes. that's a crime. And, in those in, and, and we look at those instances. But what the status quo has become in the, you know, the more progressive cities and towns in, you know, in greater Boston where they don't have anything to do with ICE is they're telling their police forces, for example, look, you, you, can't, you can't help ICE, but you can't hinder ICE. Just ignore ICE. If they call you for something, uh, don't do it. Just do what you're doing and just ignore them and, and you don't, no need to coordinate with them. And that's unfortunate. It's annoying, but they can do that. That's not illegal. Okay, I mean, because in uh, some in some states we are seeing um, more robust, active steps being taken, and you just yeah. wonder at what point you know that begins to cross line. You also have obviously thirteen seventy three, where you're restricting and prohibiting the flow of information from law enforcement to ICE. 
Um, yeah, and, and we and we, you know, and some of that depends on the local prosecuting authorities. I mean, you know, so it, most well known, you know, we have the Shelley Joseph case, sure, where we've alleged that a local state court judge obstructed ICE in performance of its duties. Um, I've heard in other jurisdictions that there have been instances where private citizens have tried to obstruct what ICE is doing. And, you know, that that is obstruction of federal law enforcement. Part of the problem, what I, one of the things I find so insidious about this trend with sanctuary cities and such is all it is when you pull away, when you, when you sort of scrape away the rhetoric and the, you know, and sort of the politicized phrasing is people deciding that they don't like this particular federal law, right? And so let's say you're someone who doesn't agree with the immigration laws. Okay, there's a, there's a remedy for that. It's called voting. It is not hindering federal authorities who are attempting to implement those laws because that's their job. So you yep. don't get to pick and choose the federal laws you want to follow, which is something I find myself saying a lot in this job. And you certainly don't get to pick and choose just because your own political ideology leads you to think that one is better than the other. That's not how it works. The only way sure. it works is through the legislative process. And so I think you're seeing a time where a significant minority of people in the country think the federal immigration laws are kind of optional. And the people enforcing them, that there's something immoral about the people enforcing them. When in fact, the people enforcing them are just doing their jobs as law enforcement officials. And that is unfortunate. Well, because what I think you're starting to see with Massachusetts politicians is that it's almost like they're a protected class where they're going to go the extra mile to ensure that uh, we, we keep them here. So, for example, what, what I'm seeing a lot, and maybe this has been going on for a while and I just noticed it, but let's say with LPRs, legal immigrants. Now, there's a lot of wonderful legal immigrants um, to preserve and encourage to come to the country. But if you are still a foreign national and you're not a U.S. citizen and you are a really bad person and do really bad things, we should embrace the opportunity with alacrity to get you out of here so we could have other people who will immigrate and won't commit crimes. Yes, but what exactly. I'm starting to see is this trend in Massachusetts, but other places as well, where you have sanctuary type of prosecutors and even judges where they start undercharging in order to get below the deportability threshold. Is there anything that your office at a federal end is tracking with that to ensure that some really bad um, you know, people that commit aggravated felonies and are dangerous don't escape um, yeah, enforcement we of deportation. We, we don't track it. Anecdotally, it does happen. And sometimes you'll see it on the federal side. You'll have cases in federal court where you know, defense attorneys will openly uh, raise the issue with prosecutors and judges. You know, can he plead to X instead of Y? Because if he pleads to Y, that's an aggravated felony and he's deportable. But if he pleads to X, he's, he's, he's not deportable. Um, so those conversations have been happening for years and years, and we obviously generally oppose. I mean, with the, the crime the person committed is the crime the person committed. That person knows that he or she is a guest in the United States, and if they cared about that, they shouldn't have committed wire fraud or dealt drugs or whatever it is that they did, and they need to go back to where they came from. On the state and local level, it's difficult to know when this happens. Sometimes the immigration authorities, you know, sometimes ERO will report to us when an incident like that occurs um, and we look into it, but we don't, we don't track them. 
It is it is more anecdotal than uh, having sure. real uh, quantitative data. I have not seen a wave of this. I'm sure it happens a little more than I think it does, but I have not seen a wave of instances in which state-level prosecutors or judges have uh, manipulated charging to avoid a serious felon being exposed to deportation. I think it does occur, but I have not heard tell of it in a way that I've yet found uh, really alarming. Sure. Well, that's 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 a, that's a relief because, again, it's part of a trend when you promulgate a message that the concept of deportation, even for criminals, aside from being here illegally or a legal criminal alien, is immoral. So then it almost seems like they're going to look for every way to to thwart that process. Um, and and one way to do that, obviously, is by getting prosecutors who think like them, which, you know, is kind of a trend with this this effort to elect these prosecutors. I know I've taken more than I asked from your time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't end with the final point to segue. Speaking of Soros type of prosecutors. So putting immigration aside, just general crime, there's been this mantra that I cannot tell you how many people have bought into it. I mean, both parties. I mean, conservative think tanks that I used to work for. I mean, everyone that people like you, Mr. Lelling, have nothing better to do. And you are just grabbing. I mean, people that maybe they took some drugs here and there, but they're really amazing people. And you throw them in jail in federal prison for 40 years. Is that what you do? <laughs> yeah, no. It, yeah, no, there's two aspects to I agree with you. It's a problem. There are two aspects, two misimpressions here. One, I, I have better things to do than prosecute low level, you know, really low level offenders and try and put them in jail for a really long time. Uh, we don't do that. In the opioid epidemic, we're actually quite forthright about avoiding charging street level addicts, even those selling street level amounts of pills to support a habit. We avoid that. We have better things to do, especially yep. on the opioid front. When it comes to more violent crime, uh, we are not looking for the minor street level offender to string up with, you know, uh, a mandatory minimum that might be disproportional and put that person in jail when they don't need to be. We don't do that. We don't want to do that. We have limited resources on the federal side and a lot of real crime to prosecute. And so, for example, on the violent crime side, we're looking for what we call the high impact players. We're looking for the people causing real mayhem in their neighborhoods. And if we can get those people off the street with a minor charge, we will absolutely do that. But we're not looking to sweep people up who have committed minor sort of quality of life offenses. That's just not what the feds do. There's another misimpression people have, which I think is equally insidious, and it fuels some of this uh, progressive prosecutor movement that you yep. see. And that's the myth of mass incarceration. <laughs> mass incarceration is a myth. It's one of those great terms like sanctuary city, which, which has caught on, but it's fake. So maybe 0.8%, I don't have it exactly right, but I think that's close. 0.8% of the population is incarcerated. And I think that includes jails, and I think it includes uh, pretrial detention, if I have the statistic correctly. And so what I say to people is, if you are one of 100 people on a desert island, and one of your number had to be locked up and restrained because they were doing things wrong, would that strike you as disproportional or somehow mass incarceration? No, it would probably make sense to you. Well, one out of 100 people is going to do something wrong. Well, we incarcerate less than 1% of the 380 or so million people who are in the United States. So where's the mass part 
There is no mass incarceration. Imprisonment has been dropping steadily for 30 years, has been trending downward for 30 years. In Massachusetts, I think it's 49th or 50th per capita of any state in the United States. And so mass incarceration is fake, and yet is one of the primary rationales you hear for this push to essentially decriminalize street-level crime, which I think you probably agree with me is a tremendous mistake, right? It's the antithesis of broken windows theory, which is a tried and true sociological perspective yeah. on crime control. Like, it works. It worked in the, starting in the early 90s in New York City, or was it the late 80s? And it works today. It works. But you have these quote-unquote progressive prosecutors running in the other direction but based on well, no and, and the problem arguments. with these people now is that and so, they had to start it off with this mantra of low level. But what they saw very early on is what you just said is that, oh, whoops, they don't really exist in prison because, frankly, there's a lot of violent repeat offender high level people that aren't in there and should be in there. So if you're going to cut into that, you're going to yeah. be cutting into the fat and into the meat and muscle, not the fat. So now it's more just across the board, carte blanche. You know, the numbers are too high and they don't even say low level. So it winds up applying to everyone. What I found fascinating, and I'll tell you, I didn't really fully realize this until fairly recently. Um, so when you look at things on the back end, it's, it's very easy to manip manipulate. A guy was convicted 25 years ago. You don't know his situation. He languished in there for a long time. Yeah, it was some stupid Rico weapons, uh, drug stuff. But now I, I watched it on the front end, sure. and what's amazing is, so we had this big bust of MS-13 in LA, uh, the front on click a couple months ago, um, really bad people that dismembered bodies. Um, and what I found amazing is, the, even before the pleading down, which will inevitably happen, a lot of them even initially were only hit up on RICO. So you could come retroactively when no one remembers the story and say, hey, this, this guy is languishing in there for 20 years, low level stuff. But these are some of the worst people like Latin Kings members and gangbangers. So, I mean, th this is just the frustration. We had a case in Providence where someone was released from the First Step Act. He was, you know, uh, yeah, convicted. Yeah, I, I know this. I know this case. Yeah. I mean, th yep. this guy, this guy put a gun to someone's head in 98, pulled the trigger. Somehow the guy didn't die. Um, and he pled no contest. Uh, the Providence police believed he was responsible for so many murders. So, yeah, they enforced the, you know, uh, concurrent drug sentencing on him. Um, but he he's out now. And I, it just and, and and what I'm also disturbed with, there's one thing you say, give someone another chance. But I'm finding the trend against incarceration is so strong that and, and this was the case here. Even when people violate the terms of release, they're caught with felony possession. They're caught with drugs. They're caught violating the, the, the terms of their probation. They're not put back in. Yeah, we have that problem, too. Uh, or I'd say it's a problem. The judges wouldn't. Uh, meaning we have uh, we have serious felons get out. They're put on what we call supervised release and um, they violate. And you can see the violations escalating, but the judges are extremely reluctant to put them back in. And um, you're talking about you know, for some of these people, that will be the only deterrent. And so you are creating greater risk to the community by not taking a firm and swift response to violating conditions that they knew were binding and that they knew if they violated them might result in going back to jail. And so I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And we're seeing more and more of that.
in my opinion. And also, uh, you know, and also a good point. You see, and we dealt with this recently on our end too. I know Rhode Island did um, in the earlier case. You see a lot of instances where people have been incarcerated for many, many years. You're looking, and someone recommends, uh, you know. Uh, they should get out early or there's a motion to that effect. You're looking back to what they were convicted of and you can't know or you have to look for the context around the conviction. The they sentencing been, report. They, yeah. You, like what compromises were made? What were they originally charged with? You know, it, to resolve a case, the government will routinely agree to a plea on one count. And that may be what you see 15 years later, but it could be that they were charged with 15 counts. And there was all kinds of mayhem involved. But you only see, as if through a pinhole, the one charge that they were actually convicted of, and it may distort, it may minimize in a way, in an odd way, uh, the extent of their misconduct when they were incarcerated. There may be more you need to know, and I think that's especially true in violent crime cases. And so I think people have to be very careful about clamoring for the release of um, – felons who have been in prison for a long time without very carefully analyzing the circumstances that put them there in the first place. I, I mean, I think your average American citizen that's not involved in the elite legal profession in the world they live in, for every one person you could find that might be over sentenced, over incarcerated, there's like a hundred that are the other way. It seems like there's six sure. ways from Sunday for them to get around it. It seems like you guys are increasingly having to take um, plea bargains um, there are so many obstacles to prosecution. And I just I mean, if you just look at the numbers of the uncleared um, rapes, armed robberies, aggravated assaults, oh, and sure. murders, the big four, I added it up. If you look at the uniform crime statistics every year, it's hundreds of thousands. And, and, and as you all know, you know, if a guy pleads down to, you know, we had a case recently, simple burglary where really he was originally charged with breaking in and raping two um, uh, 11 and 13 year old girls in separate incidents within 20 minutes of each other. Um, that's considered a cleared case. <laughs> so, and that's accounted for. I, I just, I, I, I will tell you at a federal level in Washington, if you take a poll of the 535 members of Congress, not 80% or so will think that somehow we're locking up all those people and then included in oh, that sure. is first time let me get it straight wait first time low level nonviolent okay i think i got it right first time low level nonviolent people are being locked up by the feds and i just um i i i, I i'm i'm really it's scared yeah i'm really scared that we're headed back i know we're not at 80s levels now although there are some metro areas especially in the west that it is actually getting pretty bad but i think we should sound the alarm before we get to that point yeah i think that that is right i think the the misimpression about incarceration of first-time offenders is a real is a real problem i think that most people in congress don't really understand what happens at that end of it uh, but that's you often run into that. So in the in the Justice Department, they'll draft up potential legislation and and they'll submit it, and then it goes to the ringer in Congress. And you and you learn very quickly that those that legislators who do not have backgrounds in the criminal justice system, whether on the defense or the, or the prosecution side, tend to have serious misimpressions about how all of this really works. 
Um, and that's just something you're pushing up against to say nothing about state legislatures. Uh, and that's just something you're constantly pushing up against when you're trying to sort of build an effective law enforcement program. No, absolutely. And, and, and one of the things we find amazing is some of the very same politicians that are very, very passionate about gun control. They just don't want to lock up gun felons. I mean, they just I, we are seeing this all the time with violent criminals, violent rap sheets, and then they're caught with felony possession. Oh, man, that's going to add to the statistics of the prison. I can't. Sure. I can't reincarcerate him. And it yeah. just it, it just doesn't make sense. So final final question. Are you guys aggressively going after some of the um, firearms titles of federal code in order to deal with a lot of these you know, really bad gang members and murderers? Oh, yes, uh, we are. We make very aggressive use of um, the federal laws, you know, I mean, you know what they are. I mean, felon in possession, all the varieties of that, everything under 922 and 924. Mm -hmm. uh, to help us in gang prosecutions, you'll see a push on this, uh, I think, in, in a lot of offices, to try and use the available federal laws to tamp down fraudulent purchases of firearms, uh, fraud in the background check process, we do a lot of that aggressively. Those tools are there, and those tools are very helpful in tamping down the trafficking in uh, illegally acquired guns. And in this day and age, that's something we should be very aggressive on. I, I, the Attorney General, I mean, I've talked to <laughs> Bill Barr about this, and this, mm -hmm. is a, this is a very, this is a priority issue for him. Tamping down gun violence is a central issue uh, for him. And you will, and I, I think you can see that over the last few years. I mean, Attorney General Sessions, I think, had the same view. Um, gun prosecutions are up across the board across the United States yes. uh, by, by a very significant amount uh, over the last two or three years. And you're going to see that only escalate uh, because it helps with the gang problem, it helps with the drug trafficking problem, it helps with the mass shooter problem. You know, we have these tools that can help us make communities safer by reducing the number of illegally acquired guns. And we need to be using them. So we do do that. And you're going to see even more of that. Perfect. Well, I mean, guns, crime, drugs, sanctuaries, immigration, all very important issues. You are so de generous. You gave me double the time. Um, thanks so much, as always. Um, I really hope you could come back and update us on some of these themes, um, some of the projects you're working on that you could at, at least speak to publicly. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, folks, if you have any questions that you want me to ask uh, Mr. Lelling in the future um, that you're concerned about, let me know. Thank you for listening. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. This has been another episode of the Conservative Review Podcast.